It's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I've been down over in Chesterton for the past 14 years, uh, and uh, in that time, uh, the good people of real life have been a wonderful extension of the Nazarene family. Uh, we've been uh, appreciative to do work and ministry together, to worship together, very thankful for Rich's friendship and uh, just for the opportunity to be with you this morning and just thankful that of uh, the reminder that uh, the body of Christ is often, you know, we, we get in our little body of Christ, right, in our church and our people, and uh, we don't get to hear stories about what's happening outside of us as much as we'd like to, but what God is doing in other places. Uh, and this morning, I just uh, rejoice in getting to share some of that with you. Uh, and share uh, a little bit about what God has been up to that you might be unaware of, uh, and maybe it'll spark your imagination uh, for how God might be at work in your life as well. Uh, as I begin this morning, I just want to give you a little bit of permission. Um, the world that uh, we minister in and that we work in is a difficult world, and I'm going to be talking about some difficult subjects this morning, uh, especially around uh, sexual vulnerability and exploitation. Um, and uh, people have different life experiences, and uh, I just give you permission to receive and or participate in this or not as you need to within that. Um, just find that that's helpful to people, and uh, just want to make sure that you, you feel like you're clear on that. So as followers of Jesus, one of the most basic things we have to figure out is, uh, we, we sang about it this morning, we proclaimed about it, we, we, we prayed about it, about the good news of God's arrival in our life. But the question is, what do we mean by that good news? Like, uh, w what makes it so good for us? Why is it a, a, a news that we would give ourselves to? And beyond that, uh, who all is it good news for? Is it just good news for us? Or is it good news also for people who don't look like us, who don't live like us, who weren't born where we were born, who may not look like us? Uh, is it good news for them as well? Is, it, is the good news that we believe in the good news that Jesus talked about and demonstrated? Because as you read through the Gospels, Jesus tended to spend time with people for whom the world only offered bad news. People who were trapped in poverty. People who were crippled by physical disability. People who were uh, crushed under oppression. People who were irreligious and, and considered sinful and were pushed to the margins. Jesus came to proclaim that those people too had good news in the kingdom of God. And it's important for us to look at our lives and wonder, is the good news that we believe in good news for those people, for people who we may not see or know or live in a relationship with, even people around the globe that we, we, we don't even understand the world they live in, do we have a good news that is good enough for them as well? And one of those categories of people that we often don't think about when it comes to good news and whether or not what we believe in is good enough for them is this category I mentioned earlier, which is the sexually vulnerable and exploited. This is not a category we often think about just when we think about people and the lives they live in, but it is a substantial category for tens upon tens of millions of people in our world where they live under the threat of exploitation or recovering from the trauma of that. And the question is, as we think about and we sing these songs and we pray is, do we have a good news that's specifically good for them? Now, this is a question you may not have asked with your life. Uh, it's one that God has led me to ask with my life continuously uh, in a lot of different ways that I'll talk about. But it's a question I think that as we turn towards Scripture and trying to understand this good news, I think we discover substantial good news for those who have suffered under sexual exploitation and vulnerability. And in order to do that, we need not go any further 
than Matthew chapter 1, which is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, next week's the beginning of Advent. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. We're getting ready, preparing for Christmas. Um, but in all of the, the passages we love to read in preparation for thinking about the coming of Jesus, I know very few people who are like, I just like to get my coffee in the morning and sit down to spend some time with God and to read the genealogy of Matthew. I just want to lead, read the name after name after name of all the people Jesus descended from because it just blesses me so much, right? Instead, it's the chapter you get to and you're like, well, I don't know why Matthew stuck this here, so I'm going to go to the second half of the chapter, right, where it gets to the good stuff, right, within this. But within the genealogy of Jesus, right, before they had, we had ancestry and DNA and all, all of these things that told us who we were related to, uh, there was a world in which people were very concerned about tracing their lineage because it told the story of who they were and where they came from. And it is uh, quite intentional that Matthew, in trying to tell the story of good news, begins by telling us of where Jesus came from, of the people that God decided to tell the story of, of Jesus through, the people that God decided to bring salvation to the world through their lineage. And in Matthew chapter 1, in this genealogy, there are five women that are mentioned. And in their stories, I think we can find this question of what is good news for the sexually vulnerable and exploited? What is good news for them? So here are the, here are the five women, right, and some of their stories. We'll go through these briefly this morning within this. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 3. So Judah the, was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, if you go to Genesis 38, you'll find this story for you. Now, Judah, uh, you may remember, that sounds like a biblical name you may at least are familiar with, uh, had, had a son, and his son was married to Tamar, and his son died. And in the system that lived in that day as a young widow, the provision for her livelihood, because she didn't own land, she didn't have a job, it was on her husband's family to provide for them. But over and over again, her husband's family failed to provide for her and left her in an extremely vulnerable state within this. Tamar was uncertain about what to do and how to get justice and for the, this family to honor God's obligations for her within this. And so in Genesis 38, we get this strange story and we, we read it and it's strange to our ears because it says that Tamar went and disguised herself and went by the road and waited for Judah, her father-in-law, to come by and she uh, sold herself as a prostitute to him, he not knowing who she was. She got pregnant through this and later word came to Judah that she was pregnant and he was furious, wondering how she had dishonored his family and why she had done this. And then she sent him proof that he, in fact, was the father. And it's a story we read, and we're like, I'm not sure what's going on here. But what's interesting is, is that in this story, there is immense shame brought because of what happened. But none of the shame is for Tamar. She is not shamed for what she did. Judah and his family are ashamed for having left her exploited uh, and vulnerable in this state where she had no other means to provide for herself other than what, uh, what we call in the trafficking world survival sex. Right? The shame wasn't on her for what she did. The shame was on his family, her family, for what they had done in putting her in that position. And God takes her story and brings her straight into the genealogy of Jesus. 
we read a little further, and we come to uh, Salmon, who was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You may remember the story of Rahab, right? She lived in Jericho, and when uh, the Israelites were coming into the land, there were spies sent out, and they were trying to figure out how God would provide freedom for them and how God would provide the land. And the, and the spies went into Jericho, and uh, they found refuge in Rahab's house. Now, she was a prostitute in the town. And out of all of the people of Canaan who were there, she is the only one who actually offered hospitality to the people of God when they arrived. Now, she lived at the margins of society. She lived in this state where she was, you know, on the edge of town. And instead of uh, turning in the spies, instead of selling them to the powers that be in order to improve herself, she took pity and had mercy on them and offered them safety and refuge. And when they came in and conquered the town, she was spared and she was married uh, to, uh, I missed, missed his name there, Oh, uh, to Salmon, the father of Boaz, and she became part of the genealogy of Jesus within this, right? Now, she became the mother of Boaz, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Know the story of Ruth, right? Here's the story of a, of a woman, once again, she wasn't an Israelite, she was from Moab, and she was married to an Israelite, and her husband died. Her husband's brother also died, and there were these two daughters-in-law left to Naomi, their mother-in-law, and she sent them home to their people, said, I can't take care of you. I have nothing to provide for you. You need to go find a man uh, to marry you so that you'll be able to have a way to live in this world. But Ruth refused to abandon her mother-in-law and her vulnerability. And so she went as an immigrant, as a foreigner, back to Israel, and the only way they had to live was that God had made provision and told the people, when you glean the fields, leave the edges of your fields so that those who are poor, those who don't have land, can come and take what's left over, right? And they will be able to eat still. And so they went and they were gleaning this field and the owner of the field, uh, Boaz, uh, saw them out there gleaning and said, told his men to not only not bother them, but to leave them extra, and Naomi realized this man had, had shown them hospitality. He had been gentle to them. Uh, and then realized that he was actually a distant relative of hers. And so she instructed Ruth, said, the only chance you may have at provision is you should go and offer yourself to this man. And so in the story of Ruth, she goes on a night during the harvest when he's there and is, uh, seems to be drunk and sleeping on the floor and doing this. And the scripture says she went and laid at her, his feet. Now, this is placing herself in the most vulnerable position possible to be taken advantage of, uh, to be exploited. But in this moment, God steps in. and Boaz indeed welcomes her, marries her, uh, brings her and her mother-in-law into his family. And now their life is rebuilt through this. And here she is, part of the story of, of God. Now, uh, Ruth, uh, who, whose son was Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. I, I, I know you know who that one is in the genealogy, right? You know who King David is. So Ruth becomes the grandmother within this. Um, but then King David, we have the fourth woman who's mentioned, right? Now, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Matthew tells an entire story in four words here. 
who had been Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. And we know her story because one day, uh, King David, at a time when he was supposed to be off waging war, decided to let his generals do that instead. This story is in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And he was hanging out in Jerusalem, and he saw a Bathsheba who was purifying herself for worship. This bathing, the ceremonial bathing she was doing was uh, not some seductive thing. She was literally uh, fulfilling the requirements of the law so she would be clean to go to worship. But David saw her, and he wanted her, and so he sent for her, and he assaulted her. She became pregnant. David found out. David tried to cover up his crime by bringing her husband back. That didn't work, so then he had her husband killed and married her. And so Bathsheba, who was just fulfilling the requirements of her life, was taken advantage of by the man in the highest position of authority in the kingdom. Her husband was murdered, and then she was forced to marry that man. But her son became king, and she was woven into the story of Jesus. Of course, the last woman mentioned Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Right? We're going to spend Advent uh, rejoicing over this proclamation that the Savior is about to come. But the moment that Mary received this proclamation from the angels that she was with child and that she was going to give birth to the Son of God, she was in her most vulnerable state. Because if Joseph did not receive her, if Joseph did not listen to the angel of God, then she was going to be an unwed teenager, cast with shame, cast out, with no provision, having dishonored her family and the people. She, was, she already lived in poverty. She lived in a very small place uh, out in the country in the middle of nowhere. She was about to be the most vulnerable person we could imagine. And yet God chose her to be, the, they describe it as the Theotokos, the God-bearer the one who bore salvation into the world. And so here, just in this genealogy of Jesus and the story of these women, what we find is that God has always intentionally chosen to bring salvation into the world through the story of the sexually vulnerable and exploited. Over and over again, God has redeemed those who have suffered this way has redeemed what they've experienced and brought them into the work God is doing to save the world. God's, uh, the good news of God's salvation is so big and so good that a category of people that we assume must be outside of God's blessing, that must be outside of any provision, people that we oftentimes associate with shame and that just sinfulness, that God has always had a different message, a message of redemption, and healing and embrace that welcomes them into God's very story of salvation. And so as we think about this, as we think about uh, what this means for our life, what does it mean that we have good news for the sexually vulnerable and exploited? I think it, it, it begs this question about, so how do our lives, how do our churches, how does our participation in the work of God in the world make provision for this? How do we extend God's good news 
which has been extended to us through the stories of these women to others who would find themselves in a similar place, to others who would be struggling within this. This is the question that God used to interrupt the path of my life. For me, it started back 15 years ago in 2007. I was in Russia working with orphans uh, and visiting uh, different state-run orphanages there. And as I began to hear the story of what happened uh, to these orphans when they left the orphanage, I rec- recognized that uh, there, was n- there was no provision for them, that their life was going to end up uh, in, uh, in jail, in criminal activity, in suicide, that the HIV rates were uh, incredibly high within that. And then we saw what it would look like for these kids to be groomed, uh, to be trafficked through the organized crime there. And when I began to recognize what, that there were, there were these large sections of people in the world that I would not come in contact with or had not been aware of that were vulnerable specifically for this and that they might be trafficked and they been drawn into this life of exploitation, God began to plant seeds in my life and began to work on me saying, okay, so what are you going to do about it? You can say you didn't know at one point, but once you know, you know, and now you're without excuse. What are you going to do about it? And so uh, that's been the fun of the last 15 years of my life is beginning to figure out what that looks like. For the last 14 years of it, uh, it's been pastoring in Chesterton at Doonland. um, And uh, quite remarkably, uh, a, a core part of our church and our identity is we ask this question a lot about uh, who is most vulnerable among us, especially for exploitation, and how can we be p- good news for them? It's uh, a big part of what our church is and who, what it is we do, not just around the globe, but even here in the region, and it's how we are for the region, right? It's one of the things we're most passionate about because we know that exploitation and vulnerability exist here within it. But the great surprise of my life is that now I'm only a part-time pastor, and I'm also part-time the co-director of Free the Girls. And so Free the Girls, we work around the globe with women who are survivors of sex trafficking, uh, and we work to help them uh, experience holistic reintegration into their communities. And so uh, most of you have probably heard at this point in life about human trafficking uh, and about the existence of sex trafficking. But let me explain a little bit about what we do and sort of what that world looks like, just sort of put it in perspective. Uh, First, debunking some of the mythology. Most people, when they hear sex trafficking, um, they picture something like the movie Taken, which is um, uh, people who are just ripped out of and stolen from their lives and kidnapped uh, and forced into this world. It's not that that doesn't happen. It's that it is really, 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 really rare in comparison to what most trafficking looks like. First of all, most trafficking isn't sex trafficking. It's labor trafficking. People being forced into jobs and occupations, indentured servanthood, that sort of thing, where they're trapped in this, they're having to pay off debts, and they're being exploited. So more people are exploited through labor trafficking than anything else in the world. But those who do experience sex trafficking are almost always trafficked um, because of one thing, economic vulnerability. They're they're trafficked, they're exploited because they live in a social position where they don't have secure housing, they don't have food, they have no education, they don't have family structure around them, um, and so they are vulnerable to be exploited in this way. And that's how most uh, women and children, especially the women we work with, that's how they end up in this. They weren't snatched off a street. 
they oftentimes had no other alternative or they were part of a family that had no other alternative than to end up in this situation within that. And so within this world, we have uh, people who do different things. We have the uh, justice preventative side of things, which is uh, you hear a lot about stings and raids and laws and uh, sort of covert operations that are looking to rescue people. Uh, That's one side of thing in prosecutions. Uh, We don't do that part of things. Then there are those who are working on what they would describe as, as rescue. Although I struggle with that word a little bit because sometimes we get the wrong image with rescue. But it's helping women, children get out of that life. Then there are people who do rehabilitation care for them. All of these parts are really important. But the reality is somebody can be brought out of that life of being trafficked. They can get care. They can get removed from it. But if you have not changed the conditions of their life that made them vulnerable to begin with, they're just as vulnerable to being re-trafficked. Some estimates are up to 80% of women that are rescued out of sex trafficking end up being re-trafficked because nothing's changed. The world they live in hasn't changed. Their vulnerabilities haven't changed. And so that's what we do at Free the Girls. We're looking to change that equation. We work in the part of the counter-trafficking world we call reintegration, and we are trying to help women uh, rebuild their lives and to change the course of their life um, by interrupting some of the systems and the things that have happened to them so that they have agency. They can choose, and they can go build a life within that. Uh, So how do we do that? We do it a number of different ways. What most people know us for is bras. If you've heard of Free the Girls, you may have heard of uh, bras. So uh, we help train women to run their own micro-businesses as one of the services we provide. Uh, And for the last 12 years, uh, we have collected new and used bras from all over the world um, that become the inventory for women to run their own small businesses, uh, selling bras in local clothing markets. Um, And we sort of stumbled into bras. Uh, It's a funny, long story. Um, But what we have discovered is that they're unbelievably effective as far as a money-making tool for women to go through our program and to graduate and to be able to rebuild their lives. Uh, In the last 12 years, um, we have collected, I think, just north of 2 million bras from all over the world. about 1.7 of those have been shipped to Chesterton, to my church, right? People effectually know, know us as uh, the Brawl Church in town, right? I'm, many circles, people refer to me like, oh, you're the Brawl Pastor, right? Not on my list of things I expected God to, to shape my life into, right? Um, but for us, bras are freedom for women. They are they're just boxes of cash that we ship around the world for these women, And the women come into our programs, and we work them for about two or three years, and we give them job skills training. We give them life skills training. We help them know how to run a business because we're not the heroes in this story. These women are. They are filled with power. They have agency. They are incredible survivors and fighters. They have had to endure more than most of us could ever imagine, and they are absolutely capable of rebuilding their lives if we support them and if we help them within that. And so that's what we do at Free the Girls. And our, we, we've expanded beyond brawls, and we do lots of other things now, too, to make sure their kids are in school and to make sure people are fed and fighting against housing insecurity and working on education. Um, because and if we're going to uh, interrupt these vulnerabilities and help women rebuild their lives, we have to do all of it. We have to be part of all of it. And the incredible gift of my life 
is getting to not only support that work, but to celebrate it and to invite people in to be part of it. So let me tell you a story about a couple of different women in our programs uh, from, some, from some of the different countries we work in, just so you can uh, understand a little bit of how this work happens within this. Uh, the first is a story about Ophelia. So Ophelia is, uh, lives in Mozambique, uh, and this is where our first program began. And uh, we've been in, uh, working in Mozambique, especially in the capital city, Maputo, there since uh, 2010. Uh, and Ophelia was one of the very first women in our bra selling program back when we thought it was mostly an idea that we weren't sure was going to work. <laughs> um, but it was women like Ophelia that made it work because she just got stuff done. She was incredible, so successful selling bras, and this became an economic engine for her uh, so that when she graduated from our program, she was ready to go into other business and uh, like had established her life within that. Well, one of the really cool things we have uh, at Free the Girls is we have something called the Inheritance Project, uh, and this is for uh, after women graduate from our program that we help them learn to save money and build up a plan for what they want to do next. But if they, if they build up this plan and come to us, we will give them matching grants towards whatever it is they want to do. They want to go to school. They want to build a house. They want to, they want to open a business. Uh, we help them build a plan and actually execute it, and then we'll help fund it. Well, Ophelia came to us and said that she wanted to buy some land. And we were super excited and said, great, can we go take pictures of the land and celebrate with you? And she said, sure, but understand, uh, when I get the document with my name on it, or when I get the document that says I own the land, my name's not going to be on it. Like, oh, well, whose name's going to be on it? She says, oh, I'm buying this land for my daughter. I think she was about 12 at the time. Now, if you want to talk about changing vulnerability in this world, you have a 12-year-old girl who now owns a piece of land. When you own a piece of the earth, when you have a, a, a home, you own something, your vulnerability begins to change. This is why in Scripture, right, God covers this when he talks about jubilee and, and servants and, and indentured servants and, and those who were slaves among them and getting reset. It was about helping people who had been enslaved be restored and have a piece of land and a place to call their own. Like this biblical idea, this is what it looks like. This is a picture of jubilee, of what it looks like for the formerly enslaved to be restored, to own something again. And Ophelia is incredible, and we, we, we celebrate her story, and she has given us permission to not show her, only show her picture, but to tell her story to others, because she is hopeful that it will, it will, it will spur people to understand what is, what is possible if we invest into this work. Uh, the next picture is from Costa Rica, uh, and this is from uh, women who graduated from our program there last December. Uh, and that guy on the far left is Joe. He's our inventory manager. Uh, he, he's the one making sure all the brawls get packed in Chesterton <laughs> within that. Um, so one of the women in our program in Costa Rica, uh, her name is Jocelyn. She's 55 years old, uh, and she began working in prostitution at the age of 15. Now, in Costa Rica, prostitution is not illegal. It's not technically legal. It's just not illegal. And so there are uh, formal sort of red zones in the capital city there uh, in San Jose. And um, uh, this is where she worked. It's where she spent four decades of her life. I can't imagine the literal hell on earth that, that those four decades were. 
In the midst of all that, she began to just try to claw her way out. At one point, she not only worked in, but actually ran some brothels, trying to claw her way out of that work. She had substance abuse issues, addictions, of course, trying to self-medicate her way through that life. But about five years ago, her son was killed in a drug deal gone bad there in the red zone. And it sort of interrupted her life. And I think she just decided that this was, she just couldn't do this life anymore. In the midst of that, thanks be to God, God found her. She found Jesus and began to believe something different was possible for her life. Then she got involved with Casa Esperanza, who are our partners there in the red zone uh, in the capital city. And she began to discover that she may have other skills and she could take a lifetime of skills she had, she had developed around selling and managing and doing this and that there could be a redemptive purpose in it for her. Now she's selling bras and flourishing, doing well, and is putting money aside and has this whole plan for buying sewing machines and building this whole sewing business. And I have no doubt that Jocelyn's not only going to pull herself out of that, but she's just going to create a business. She's just going to keep bringing other women in and doing this because she's an entrepreneur and she's powerful, right? She is a survivor and she's going to build this new life within it. Story of another woman, Kati. Uh, I didn't bring a picture from El Salvador, but Kati, she, um, she's one of the fiercest women I ever met. I was back uh, in El Salvador in March when we had a graduation of seven women from our program there. Now, Kati, at a very young age, um, was placed in a position where she was essentially trying to raise her younger siblings as a teenager. And it was too much. She got into the wrong crowds. She ended up on the street. She ended up addicted to substances. And there she ended up getting exploited on the streets and living in, in that world. Uh, in El Salvador, uh, the, the, the gangs are the main dominant force that are at work there. And she's exploited by gangs and actually ended up in jail at one point because of her being prostituted out and various things that were associated with that. But as she emerged out of that, she got... Uh, connected with our partners there uh, who work in El Salvador. And they were able to help her begin to rebuild her life. Now, seven years later, when I got to meet Kati for the first time, having heard about her story over and over again and, and met her, I was just blown away by her presence of this woman who had gone from broken and on the streets and in jail to like now she's not only this incredible mom, but raising her siblings. And she gave this speech at graduation about, about the, the role model she wanted to be uh, for the, the people in her life and how she wanted them to see and to know what was possible. I was blown away by Kati and all that she had already accomplished. And post-graduation, she was uh, buying into a hair salon and was going to be a hairdresser and building this whole business within this. So then I was devastated in May when I got news that Kati was back in jail. El Salvador is ruled by someone who refers to himself as a benevolent dictator. And there was a bunch of gang violence one month, and he decided the way to do that was to arrest as many citizens as possible. And in one month, 40,000 Salvadorans were arrested. And Kati just had the police show up at her door one day, asking if she was in a gang, and she said she was not, and proved, wanted to prove it. And she went and got her paperwork showing she had served time in jail and had, was done with that and had moved on. And they simply took up her paperwork, ripped it up, threw it away, and arrested her. She ended up in a mass, uh, literally 500 people in a court, all being sentenced, without evidence, without anything, just being sent to jail. And I, and I tell you that part of Kati's story because this, this work never ends, 
right? The systems of exploitation and injustice in this world, they do not cease. And so in the midst of all that, not only have we been praying for and trying to support Kati, we've been working with our partners on the ground to make sure that her children are fed, to make sure that they're safe, making sure that if we can get lawyers in, anybody we can do to help get her out of jail within that, to sustain her and support her. And whatever comes next will be part of her story too. Because ending vulnerability, ending exploitation, ending oppression is not a one-off moment. It's not just something you did. Like, I, well, I, I did that. It's great. Uh, the brokenness continues. And we're committed uh, to being with these women, to being part of their lives, to seeing them flourish, whatever is going to come, and whatever ways we can support them and do that. So I tell you that story about how God's been in work in my life and the organizations that I get to partner with and the incredible women we work with. Because the question for you is, uh, what, what would it look like for your life to be good news for the vulnerable and the exploited? Like, do you have a good news that is big enough to be good news for them? How might God interrupt your life in order to be good news for them? Well, I'm here today first to thank you because those of you who are part of real life um, have been part of this good news. Uh, you guys very generously supported us last year with your Christmas offering. And out of all the churches we partner with across the country and really organizations across the globe, uh, this church uh, gave more to support Free the Girls last year than any other church we work with. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah, you can celebrate that. That's great, right? That's awesome, right? You guys uh, were a significant part of that. You guys were part of ro us rolling out a new jobs curriculum this year that's designed for the women in the particular cultures they work in. You're part of the new women's health program that we developed that we just launched in Uganda that's already going to be in the hands of several thousand women working on women's health initiatives. Uh, your investment into that was already part of that. So I'm here to encourage you and to thank you for that and for your generosity in that, because it's already making significant difference. You are already participating in this good news. But the question is, is there more? Does God want something more from you? And what would that look like? What would it look like to be part of the restoration of those who were formerly enslaved and trapped in these systems to new life? Well, the, the fun part of when I get to talk to you about this is I'm, I'm oftentimes at different places in the country and talking to different people, but you guys are like down six from me, right? <laughs> right? Like I shop at Meyer every week, right? Like this, is, this is great, right? Um, and so the really fun part about Free the Girls and our work here is that it is a work of the region, right? Every brawl that's shipped from anywhere in the world arrives at Chesterton to our church where we get to sort them, pack them, and send them out around the world. But beyond that, we are actively at work here in our region, trying to educate, trying to uh, work with schools, work with community groups, uh, uh, in order to help uh, be good news for those who are vulnerable and exploited. At our church, we even have a group of women that were so inspired by this that they formed their own ministry, and they've been uh, have a ministry called Just Love that works uh, in local strip clubs here in Lake Station, going in each week to be good news for the women who are there, um, to be present in their lives. Uh, and so we're always uh, excited about the uh, opportunity to partner together and to do this good work together because this is the good news of Jesus that we get to be part of. 
Uh, and so uh, I invite you to just to think about that, to pray about that. Uh, we have a table out there with information and cards about how you could be a monthly donor or a supporter, be part of that. But also, like, sometimes you might just want to do something. So uh, I have a slide for uh, coming up in uh, December the 6th. Uh, we're hosting a packing party. Uh, one of the ways that we really try to combat these things is um, we like to have fun together uh, in order to fight against darkness. And one of the ways we do that is we host packing parties where people come in from around the community, uh, different churches, school organizations, sports teams or whatever, and they help us pack and sort bras and repackage them to send them across the globe. Uh, just Friday, we filled an entire semi-truck filled with pallets of bras that are going around the globe, and we have enough already to fill a second pallet truck, which is going to happen in two weeks. So if you want to come see what the fun is about, if you want to come uh, open boxes and sort bras and repackage them or do that, help us with projects, want to do something active, uh, you're welcome to do that. Uh, we have regular parties like this, but we're also happy to just open up our space for people who want to come in and serve in any way. But if there's something beyond that, maybe, right? If there's something that you feel God's stirring within you that maybe uh, you're not sure, maybe there's, maybe there's something else God is calling you to do, then then my presence here is just an invitation to you, right? The, the space God has invited me into life is to be a bridge for, to be a trainer for, and to be uh, someone who invites others into this work for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of being good news to those who are vulnerable and exploited. And if that's a calling you want in your life, if you need resources, training, or you just want to find out how to get more involved, uh, the invitation is just to, to talk to me. I would love to talk with you about that and what God might be doing. But thank you for your support of Free the Girls. Thank you for being part of this. And we invite you to continue praying for us in this season. Uh, as you feel the economic crunch of our world here with what we live in, right? And we've all felt it, right? You look at your grocery bill when you're done shopping, you're going, ooh. Or you fill up your gas tank and you, you feel it. Know that those who are most vulnerable are feeling it in ways far beyond we can imagine. All of these global economic realities that are happening are making more people vulnerable and, and trapping them in deeper levels of poverty they can't escape from. This work is more important now than it's ever been. And so we invite you to be part of that. We're thankful for your support in it. Uh, but I just open your heart to what God might be doing within you uh, to be good news in this way.